0: What really motivated me is I want to do something that might give people on earth more time with their loved ones. And in some ways it was selfish. It was, I will be incredibly motivated to get up every Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning. If I know I'm going to work and if I do a good job, maybe I will and my team will and my company will contribute to giving people more time on earth with their loved ones. And so that kind of motivated The
1: switch. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Katherine Johnson. Everything is physics and math. Our guest for today, Safi Bakal, knows this as well as anyone. He's a physicist, biotech entrepreneur, and former CEO. It's a rare combination. He was also named the ENY Biotechnology Executive of the Year in New England and worked on President Obama's Council on Science Advisors in 2011. He's a widely renowned speaker and the author of the Wall Street Journal bestseller and highly acclaimed book, Loon Shots. Safi, welcome. It's great to have you on the Elevate podcast. Thanks, Bob. Great to be on your show. All right, so you describe yourself as a second-generation physicist. I think both your parents were, were physicists. So was this a choice that you had, or was this something you were just born with? Well, being born into
0: that set of parents was <laughs> not certainly not my choice, but I'm very glad that I was. You know, well, My dad sadly passed away, but my mom is still alive and still teaching at Princeton University, and I, I got a ton out of having academic parents, but probably more. You know, you and I were just talking before the show about questions and the power of questions. Yeah. And I think if there's one thing that I got from my parents, it's the power of asking great questions. And in fact, it actually reminds me of a story. There was a a Nobel laureate physicist, since you mentioned physics and and academic parents, a Nobel laureate physicist named Isidore Rabi. And when he was asked, what does it take to win the Nobel Prize? You know, what did you what Was it in your education or your background or your learning or your experience or your approach you think that helped you become this person who could win a Nobel Prize? He said it was my mother. He said, growing up, when I got back home from school, every day, my mom didn't ask me like the other kids, what did you learn today? She asked me, did you ask any good questions today? Hmm. And so I, I've taken that away. I use that with my kids now. And in fact, I actually, I was just speaking with an entrepreneur, CEO, friend of mine who's built an amazing company and he was asking me about how can he instill more curiosity in his product managers, his program managers, as they're talking to customers and trying to get insights from the customers. How do you create that discipline of curiosity? And I told him the same story. I said, Listen, when you have your meeting with your product managers and you're talking about customer insights, very often CEOs or senior executives go around the table and say, All right, what did you learn? What's working well? What isn't? I said, Put at the end of your one pager, you know, the checklist you go through, what were the best questions you asked? Yeah. And that can generate a very different mindset and a very different set of discussion among your people. What were the questions that sparked the most interesting insights out of your customers that teased out of them the stuff that you could really do better in ways that were surprising? Not boring questions like, hey, what do you think of our product? Or, uh, hey, what's going well? But really surprising questions that kind of unlock something new that you can use to improve.
1: Yeah, you know, a couple of things. You know, we were joking before the show that, that we both heard people say to us, you know, no one's ever asked me that question before. <laughs> and I, I always think it's a compliment or, or I always think they're trying to avoid, I always say, was that not a good question or do you not want to answer it? So it's, it's interesting, but it sounds like you get that a lot too. I do. And
0: I think, you know, I think there's enormous power in that because there's a mindset, you know, if you're a manager or you're a leader or even in personal life. You want to get things done and move on to the next thing. So you want, you're looking for closure. You're looking for answers. If you're a CEO asking somebody on your team, you know, what did you learn? What did you do? That person wants to give answers and move on and see you satisfied and smile. To step back and say, you know, what questions did you ask that you found were really useful? It's a shift in mindset. And it starts, it starts by signaling to the room, to the team, to the company, that you want to be a learning organization, that you want to ask the best questions. Because strategic advantage is not just about having a better asset or a better product or a better operational system. It's about having better insights into your customers. How do you get better insights into your customers? Well, obviously, it starts with access. But once you have that access, how do you use it? Are you really good at asking questions or are you just average?
1: Yeah, and as we're recording this, we're we're in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis and I think you're really seeing the approach of different leaders around the world from the ones who who are happy to be asked questions and the ones who do not want to be asked questions. That's right. You know, the, I always find
0: some of the, the best discussion I, so I've started a lot of uh, just over the last few months. I've get a lot of calls from leaders or CEOs who have read uh Loonshots and want me to talk to their executive teams and some amazing companies in fields totally outside what I've worked on for the last fifteen years. You the know, last fifteen or so years I did biotechnology, yeah. you know, drug development and cancer and autoimmune diseases. So I've actually been drawn into a lot of COVID nineteen drug discovery and development discussions, which, you know, we can talk about Later, as I think, one of the reasons you reached out, why I'm more yeah, optimistic. It's, on, it's on my list. Yeah, it's on your <laughs> list. Uh, but you know, one of the things I've found, you know, in uh, speaking with entrepreneurs and CEOs, which um, you know, like I said, I was just saying, it's so many different industries. It's you know, whether it's uh, you know Evan Spiegel and his team at Snapchat, or people at you know Microsoft or Google or Verizon or Amazon or tech companies, financial institutions, small companies, big companies, you know, rapidly growing companies, just asking great questions is so much more satisfying discussion on both sides than giving them the answer. A lot of them say, hey, Safi, you've been a CEO, public company, blah, 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 you know, uh, what would you do here? And, you know, of course I could say, well, I would do these four things. But it's much more fun for me and much more fun for them by, you know, when you can turn it around and tease out of them, how are they thinking about it? And what do they see as their big challenges for them? And very often when I do that, I say, well, actually my first reaction to answer that question wouldn't really have worked very well because there, there's something else that they're worried about that they're struggling with that I wasn't aware of. So I've actually learned a lot just from this you know, last year or so of talking to folks all over the country and actually in the military as well, Navy, Air Force, national security organizations, so many of them struggle with the same set of issues and same set of topics. How do we innovate faster and better? How do we balance core operations being excellent at our core business? If we have a program or a product or a franchise that's growing well, how do we continue to do well on that? How do we not drop the ball on that at the same time encourage wildly new things? Cause those are in many ways the opposite.
1: Yeah. And we'll get, we'll get into this when we talk about loon shots, but I think a lot of organizations fail by being, you know, either too focused on the future and letting their core fall apart or their core just starts getting old and they, they haven't figured out how to that balance.
0: Yeah. And you know what, where this really crystallized for me, I was on a, in sort of a funny, almost surreal way. I was on a, nuclear submarine with the Admiral responsible for transforming the Navy for the 21st century. Yeah. And he was really gung-ho about kind of the stuff he'd read in Loon Shots about nurturing those ideas that can turn the course of wars as well as transform industries. And so I was standing with him on a nuclear submarine about what can the U.S. Navy do. And if you're on a submarine, hundreds of miles from shore, deep underwater, you don't want to start hearing clanking noises from your (laughs) nuclear engine. That's your core. Similar to a plane in the sky, right? Not the time to fix the engine. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, you don't want to be surprised by a new kind of torpedo. So for companies, this question is a matter of P&L. But a nuclear submarine or military or hospitals, it's a matter of life and death. So that's this kind of the core of it is this, how do you balance the core of the new and how can you use smarter approaches, including one of which is asking questions, in a, in which we can get to in more detail, what I mean by that, in a very strategic way.
1: How do you do that? How do you balance the core and the new? Well, well, I just can tell from this discussion that we're, we're going to bounce around. And one one thing I want to actually go back to, because this example just came to mind twice when you said it, just... There's value just asking questions and seeing the response. So this actually crosses both of these things. But what I was most fascinated about the whole Theranos situation, right, was how many really smart (laughs) people and well-renowned people got involved investors otherwise without asking any basic questions about the company or its technology.
0: That's right. I think that's an example of strategic questioning. So you can ask a lot of questions. But what you want to do is ask questions strategically. So, you know, one of the, uh, I think you sent to me or somebody sent to me in an email. Hey, Safi, what's your, you have these sort of five laws of loonshots on your blog. Yeah. So what are those five laws? So one of them I use, because I don't have a very good memory, I need these kind of like mnemonics, <laughs> mnemonics or visual cues. So one of them is, uh, I think of as LSC. And so that's listen to the suck with curiosity. And here's what I mean by that. It's especially important if you are an entrepreneur, uh, you're championing some you know, wild, crazy idea that everybody says is nuts, but you think has a chance. That's why I call them moonshots. If you have been working really hard and pouring your heart and soul into a program or a project or a product, when somebody says they're not interested, if a customer says yeah no thanks or a partner that you thought you could count on walks away or an investor you know rejects your pitch your first reaction is to dismiss reject attack say you know wow well, these guys are idiots or they don't understand or they didn't read on page 97 i'd already anticipated <laughs> you know yeah. the, you know their question and in my 57 page powerpoint 400 Data points on each slide. They miss page thirteen, number seven, and you know, and on and on and on. Right? You want reassurance, so you want to turn to you know your friends or your colleagues or your mother. Am I on the right track? Of course you are, honey. But that doesn't help you. And the reason I to say listen to the suck with curiosity is because the one piece of advice that you get often in business may have had this in in workshops is the and I certainly did is the um, active listening. Repeat what you've heard. Well, that's actually not enough. If an investor rejects your pit, partner walks away just saying, I understand, thank you very much, doesn't help you at all. Right. What you really need to do is listen to that suck with curiosity. And what I mean by that is you take off the defensive hat, the I want to punch him in the face hat, and you put on a Lock Holmes hat and you say, Help me understand, you know, what was it about it, you know, the product that didn't quite resonate for you. Now, this is a very difficult thing to do well because they don't want to give you that feedback. It's a difficult discussion.
1: Yeah, people are afraid to give feedback. I have noticed that. When we've dealt with clients and stuff, we ask for feedback, they're afraid to give it. And speaking of suck, you know who sucks at this? Sales teams. So when they, I've seen when they lose, I've seen this cross-engine, when they lose a deal, it is a conspiracy. They were set up to fail. Like It doesn't occur to them to really get the honest feedback about what they screwed up. And and what, what part of their pitch didn't resonate?
0: Absolutely. So there's three things. Number one, it's hard. Why? If you've put your heart and energy and soul into something, you don't want to hear why. For example, if you're a dad or a mom of a new baby, it's very difficult to hear your baby's ugly, <laughs> but it's even much more difficult. Think about it, Bob. Yeah. It's much more difficult to pause and say why. Right. And that's actually what you need to do. So, number one is very difficult because you want reassurance. You don't want to hear the negative. Number two, they don't want to give it to you. So, for example, let's say you're pitching a venture capitalist on an idea, and it's the same with a sales team or a customer. They may think that venture capitalist may think it's the dumbest idea. They've heard the entire month, but you know what they're going to do? They're going to pat you on the back and smile and say, Hey, thanks. Absolutely. Hey, you know what? Um, We just closed our fund or we have a competing investment or, you know, I've got to walk my cat or whatever. They're just going to not, they're going to do anything but tell you what they really think. Why? There's no upside to them. They want you to come to them with your next investment idea six months from now. They want you to come to them and not their competitor. So why should they tell you what they really think? They really yeah. want you to come with their next idea. So the same with a sales guy approaching you know, a customer. The customer may want to hear their next thing, the customer may be friends with the sales guy they may go have beers and you know hamburgers or they used to before covid quarantine yeah but they may be very friendly and he doesn't want to damage that relationship and there may be good things coming later so why should he bother there's no upside so the number 2 lesson is this is an art form yeah learning how to put on your sherlock home take off the defensive hat and put on your sherlock's home hat is an art form to tease it out because they don't want to give it to you. And you know what? What they're holding on to is gold. For example, a friend of mine has gotten very smart and strategic about it, and she uses this very well. She often will ask a third-party person who's a mutual friend to go to them in full knowledge, full transparent, and say, what did you think? And what's the honest feedback? Because the person that she presented to may find it difficult to give her face to face what they really think, but no problem to a third party. Right. And then from the third party, she gets it and then she uses this. So the the first thing is that it's very difficult. The second thing is that it's an art form and a skill that's really worth developing. And if you're a leader, it's worth instilling and coaching in your people. And the third thing is it's more valuable than gold. For example, you go to a customer, say, "Here's my product, I'm building this app or this site or this thing," and the customer says, yeah, "Yeah,, you know after a week, they look excited, then after a week later, nothing." Now you could just let it go. But if you figure out and pull on that thread and eventually pull and get them and say, "Listen, I know this is very awkward and difficult, and you know it's asking a big favor, but it'd be a huge favor for me if you could tell me what you really think. And then they cough up, well, you know, actually I didn't want to say, but there's a group in Sweden that's got a similar product. It's about a third the price and they got this other feature. Price is not a big deal, but they got this other feature I really love. You're like, wait, what? This group in Sweden's got this other feature. What feature? Holy cow. We can do that. We can do that even better. And we can add this, this new feature and combine. You have just learned something precious by pulling on that thread. So. Number one, it's very difficult. Number two, it's a, and you don't want to hear it. Number two, it's an art form and a skill set you want to develop. And number three, when you pull on that thread, when you listen to the suck with curiosity, what's at the end of that thread can be more valuable than gold.
1: Yeah. And I I this is always the same reason that I, I never understood stealth mode companies. We're in stealth mode. We don't tell anyone that we're doing to me, that's no feedback loop. Wouldn't it be really great to hear about the four competitors that are doing the same thing if someone knows what you're doing? And just if you're telling them what you're doing, not how you're doing it, and that's that gives away your whole secret sauce, it, it doesn't seem that secret.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you're developing a new chemical molecule and you publish the chemical structure in the New York Times, okay, that now you're giving away some
1: stuff. But if you but tell people that you're doing a you know a synthetic chemical molecule, like that really shouldn't give away <laughs> the, yeah. the whole business.
0: Everything is case specific, but the underlying point which we've just been talking about is learning to ask questions well is a strategic advantage and most people you know sort of ground one you know level 1 or 2 or beginner level is just not asking questions most people just move on you know intermediate level like college level is actually pausing and asking questions but the graduate schools super winners are the ones who listen to the suck with curiosity like sherlock holmes and tease
1: out that gold at the end of the thread I love it. We're going to get back to the other rules in a minute. But I'd love to hear how you made the transition from physics to entrepreneurship.
0: Uh, Well, I was doing physics. I was at Stanford and then Berkeley. And I had a kind of an academic career plan because that's kind of all that I knew. But I really got curious about, hey, it seems to me, and I I might be going on a limb here, that 99.99% of the world are not theoretical physicists. And they seem to be doing something kind of interesting. I and mean, sort of the world seems to be working kind of without theoretical physicists. Like, how does the world work? And what is a market? And what is a capital market? And what is a business? And so I just got very curious about that. As so I did a detour in um, New York, I worked for a management consulting firm named McKinsey, which is they're kind of like a halfway house yeah. between <laughs> academia. In the business, world, they they teach you proper manners and etiquette and before they let you loose on <laughs> the business world before you can wreak too much damage. And then I, I just knew I uh, the bug or the urge to do something, do something bigger than myself. Because if you're in academia, you know, your focus is the pursuit of truth, which is a very noble purpose and exciting and fun. But of course, you're focused on building up your career and your resume and original discoveries. And if you're at consultant, your focus is on making, uh, especially you know, if you're in an elite consulting firm, your focus is on making large companies more successful. But I wanted to do something that was beyond that, that could help people more broadly, especially in the medical world and connecting science and business. And around that time, my father got sick. And unfortunately, he uh, died uh, not much after he discovered he had a rare type of leukemia. But I figured, you know, what really motivated me is I want to do something that might give people on earth more time with their loved ones. And in some ways it was selfish. It was, I will be incredibly motivated to get up every Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning. If I know I'm going to work and if I do a good job, maybe I will, and my team will, and my company will contribute to giving people more time on earth with their loved ones. And so that kind of motivated
1: the switch. There is a definitive connection that I have seen between purpose and pain (laughs) in terms of how how people choose their vocation and what they choose to be passionate about. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, I I saw some
0: study, I I don't know why it was just reminded of this, but so many of the very high achievers lost a parent early
1: on or had that as a driving force. I think there's some stat like 40 or 50% of U.S. presidents had their fathers pass away before they were 10 or something like that. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I think it is sort of surprising,
0: but I, you know, I know for me, I think about losing my father, you know, almost every day or certainly every week. And it's, it's very meaningful and it's a very powerful motivator. I don't know what it's like for other people, but You know, he was a big influence in my life for sure.
1: So you went from physics to entrepreneurship, and then you served on uh, President Obama's Council of Science Advisors. How were you selected for that role? And I'd love to hear about what you learned from that experience. How was I selected
0: for that role? I was, um, President Obama, I think, had a a science advisory council that was very skewed towards the academic world. Uh, They had a few tech CEOs, Eric Schmidt, has been involved for a long time. And I think they were looking for someone who had both academic experience, uh, which I did, and business experience, but specifically in biotech and healthcare, which they didn't have that much of. And so uh, one of the folks there had worked with me in the past and called me up and I said, uh, you know, look, I don't know anything about politics or or national research or even the political history. He said, doesn't matter. You know, that's not why we're recruiting. We have a, a building full of people who are experts in that, but we don't have any biotech CEOs around. So I came in, I joined, I actually thought it started off like a disaster because, um, they put all these people around a giant U-shaped table in this building that they were in in Washington and I didn't realize at the time it was sort of like an audition they had like 40 people or something and there were all these very well-known people going around the table everyone had you know did a 2-minute introduction or something and you know there was a general of this and a president of this hospital and a president of that university and like a half dozen Nobel laureates and they were listing their accomplishments and you know I had a very short list of you know what I was gonna say about myself and by the time it got to me I was like wow, there's just like no way they're gonna pick me for this thing. You know, it's a little bit absurd and uh, The guy on my left had been it uh, was the president of uh, Caltech and he's listing all the Nobel laureates from Caltech <laughs> And I'm like, oh my god, like what am I gonna say? These guys are all like 10 or 20 years older than me, too and uh, so but I just th- when it got to me and he finished I was like well I actually sort of just threw away my script and kind of told a little joke because he ended his thing as saying, well, you know, at Caltech, we have this reputation of being a monastery, you know, a very monk-like institution. And he said that, and then they turned to me and I just like, huh. And I said, well, uh, before I get to introducing who I am, I said, you know, my Parents were at Caltech. My father was an assistant professor at Caltech, and he met my mother on a trip to Israel and brought her over to Pasadena, California. And I was born at Caltech. And I said, So I am what you might call proof by counterexample that Caltech is not a monastery. And everybody just totally burst out laughing. In retrospect, it's not that funny a joke. But you got to remember, this was like a room full of mathematicians and physicists. And, you know, I was just like, I basically figured like, look, there's so many prestigious, famous people around here. No one's going to choose me for this thing. So, you know, might as well just have a little fun, have dinner, and then go back to the real world. And anyway, everybody laughed. And then like a week later, I got a call. Oh, yeah, they would like you to do this project. <laughs> okay. So that's how a joke landed me on, I think. So it was kind of a loon shot when, when you think about it. Yeah. It was sort yeah. of a crazy idea and it just happened. And that actually ended up turning, the research I did for that ended up sparking the research that I did for uh, the
1: book Bloom Shots. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So perfect segue. Uh Your book came out la- last year, Loon Shots. It's been widely acclaimed and talked about. I think this thing that is really hard for people to put their you know, hands around, which is how to cultivate the big ideas that seem crazy, but the ones that end up changing the world. So what, what was the inspiration for the topic? I mean, you had a lot of the research. And, and how do you, why do you think it's even more relevant than ever where we are right today? We definitely we need some loon shots.
0: Yeah. Well, everybody knows it's difficult to nurture wild new ideas inside you know, even medium-sized companies. Yeah. Let alone large companies, and everybody knows that and talks about that. But there've been all these sort of soft, squishy explanations. There hadn't been anyone who had really developed the science of it and got some useful conclusions about what you can actually do practically that's different. Now, what what sparked it and is actually enormously related to what we're going on, what's going on in the country right now. Goes back to that first meeting that I had at, the, at with President Obama's Council of Science Advisors. After I was selected uh, and I flew down for the first meeting, the chair of the group stood up and said, "Thank you, and uh, you know your job is to develop a recommendation for the president on the future of national research. What should the United States do for the next seventy years?" He said, "Your job is to write the next generation of the Vannevar Bush Report." And I remember thinking, wow, I have no idea who Vannevar Bush is or what his report was. I'm probably the wrong guy for this job. And probably what like a lot of people would do, I was thinking, hmm, how do I get out of this? Because I'm definitely the wrong choice for this job. But that ended up sparking uh, you know, going back in history and figuring out what they were talking about. And so Vannevar Bush was the dean of engineering at MIT in the 1930s. And got a very clear sense that the U.S. was falling behind in science and technology relative to this kind of startup uh, movement in Germany at the time, which is Nazism. That Nazi scientists were moving far faster than American scientists. And in fact, that was the case. And so he quit his job, moved to Washington, and uh, talked his way into a meeting with President Roosevelt and he said um, it was a ten-minute meeting and it probably changed the course of the war more than anything else. And he told FDR, he "said Well, we are going to lose this war. There's a war coming, and we're going to lose because in the crucial science and technology that's going to make a difference, we are far behind, and the army and navy will never catch up in time." And he, as it turns out, was right that we were far behind. In fact, when when the war started in 1939, we were drastically outmatched we had the the germans had these things called u-boats which allies had no answer and were sinking ships every month faster than the allies could build them they had these planes the Luftwaffe, which the allies also had no answer and they kind of wiped out western europe in a matter of weeks and you had these two german scientists that discovered something called nuclear fission splitting the atom which put hitler within reach of the most dangerous weapon ever created by mankind so he was absolutely right and then what he did the system and the organization and that he developed and why he did it turned the course of the war in ways that not many people realize. But actually, because it's so relevant today and to what the federal government needs to do today, and I ended up writing a, a Wall Street Journal op-ed about it, about what we could learn from Vannevar Bush and World War II for what that means for the response to COVID today, I ended up actually making that that story is told in the first chapter of Loonshot, so I ended up making it free to everybody. Anybody who comes onto my website you know, can click a button and, you know, with their email, just get that story if they want to read it. But that story is what inspired uh, the book, how he did it, what he did, why he did it. If you say, oh, I'm in a medium-sized company or a large-sized company, I we're really struggling to innovate, and that's the calls I get today from not only... Giant companies of 10,000, 50,000, or 100,000 people, but even companies, you know, let's say it's Spotify or Snap or these companies that started off as five people and now are a couple thousand and, and name brands. Same question. We feel like we're starting to ossify. What can we do? Well, I'll tell you what you can do. Vannevar Bush faced an organization that was 2 million people, the US military. And he created a system for innovating astonishingly fast that balanced the core and the new. He didn't try to change the military culture. Yeah. You know, you want the reducing risk, the high emphasis on quality and reproducibility when you are building parachutes yeah. or planes, but you want to take a lot of risk, do exactly the opposite when you're nurturing loon shots. So he figured out how to do these two opposite things, take risk and minimize risk within the same organization. And so kind of that's what the book is about and that's how it actually grew out of this work i did for president obama's council of science advisors
1: and you touched on i think one of the rules but i'd love to hear the five rules and i can i can imagine we'll talk about this afterwards but i can imagine how like a vaccine for 7 billion people you'd need to be worried about innovation and safety at, at the same time well it's
0: really amazing what we're seeing today because uh, and that's what sparked me to um not only write that piece, but in the last uh, 10 days, I've participated on calls with the CEOs or R&D heads of maybe 30 of the 40 largest biotech and uh, pharma and uh, diagnostic manufacturers in the world. We have never seen this level of cooperation. Now you're on one call where the CEOs or heads of R&Ds, sworn competitors, are sitting together, first name basis, trying to figure out how you can drop all boundaries and come together in this not only national crisis but global crisis. It's unprecedented, and it's not unprecedented. It's unprecedented in the last few decades, but that's exactly what happened eighty years ago. And there's some very important lessons from what happened eighty years ago for today. And so that's actually how I've been spending a lot of my time in the last uh, couple of weeks.
1: And so, what are the five sort of core rules or that create the condition for loonshots? Well, there's, uh,
0: you know, kind of one set for individuals and we talked about the, uh, you know, listen to the suck with curiosity and, you know, mind the false fail, you know, all these signals that, you know, when you have a failure, you know, it's so many of the most important technologies and breakthroughs, even Facebook, the first social network, almost every investor passed on that because they said, oh, we've seen social networks, Friendster and Myspace and they all fail. Well, those were all examples of false fails. So you need to understand what that is. And I talk about that a little bit as well. You know, minding the false fail, expecting the three deaths that essentially every important idea that transformed a business, transformed an industry, or transformed the course of a war failed several times before it succeeded. So those are all kind of on the individual side and learning to watch your blind side as well. If you're a product person, product, product, product very often really great product people, Steve Jobs was no exception, Edwin Landed Polaroid was no exception, miss the subtle shifts in strategy that are equally, if not more, important. I talk about that in the example of Pan Am, actually the rise and fall of Pan Am, where the leader there was an incredible product person, a jet engine person who brought jet engines to the masses and so forth, but miss these subtle shifts in strategy like hub and spoke or frequent flyers that actually turned out to be just as important, if not more important. So, those are all on the individual side. You know, we're going really fast
1: because this is a podcast, but people can, yeah. you know, read about it. Yeah, and that. we still want them to buy the book. So, we don't have to give it all away.
0: You can buy the book. You <laughs> can get that first chapter for free. You can read this Five Laws of Loonshots on my blog at um, loonshots.com or mylastname.com. But if you are inside a company, what we just talked about is some of the stuff for individuals. What Vannevar Bush figured out in a two million person organization, I think of as three things. And again, I don't have a very good memory. So I think of them visually
1: yeah.
0: ice cube, garden, hoe, and heart ice cube, garden, hoe, and heart. So the ice cube means separate your artists and soldiers. The ones the artists. Let's say are the ones who are working on the wild, crazy new ideas, the ones who you want to fail, yeah. right? You want them to try 10 things, nine of which don't work. Right? So if, if, you know, you are a soldier and you're focused on on time, on budget, on spec. You know, let's say you have a sales guy. You don't want your sales guy knocking on a customer's door and saying, Here's your toaster. Toaster, I ordered a television. You want them to be pretty on time, on budget, on spec, reliable, and manufacturing or customer service. Right? Yeah. But just like if you have a guy, you know, who's a soldier whose job is to manufacture planes, you don't want him putting 10 planes in the sky and say, You know what? Let's just uh, see which nine fall down and we'll keep that one good one. Yeah. So, by the way, I had a captain in the Air Force call me up when I was talking, you know, after he'd read the book. And actually, I guess he was a major in the Air Force and he managed a nuclear missile silo. And he said, you know, this is exactly right. You know, I don't want our guys who are managing, you know, the nuclear missile silos experimenting with which button to push.
1: Yeah.
0: I was like, wow, that's really reassuring that. <laughs> You know, you got that. We, we have that going on now. So anyways, your first one is the ice cube. You want to separate these two. And why do I call it the ice cube? Because it's, you can think of it, and this is an analogy, but in the book, I actually tease out the mathematics and an equation for it. You can think of what goes on in a company by analogy with what goes on in a glass of water. Right? In a glass of water, if you stick your finger in and swirl your finger around, the molecules just slosh around your finger. Well, that's their behavior. They're loose and sloshing around. Now, if you lower their temperature, all liquids will do that. But if you lower the temperature right at 32 Fahrenheit, their behavior will suddenly change. They'll become completely rigid. You can't stick your finger in anymore because they freeze into ice, but it's the same exact molecules. So, How did they know to suddenly change behavior? There's no CEO molecule with a bullhorn saying, okay, everybody is 33 Fahrenheit. Everybody's slosh around. Oh, wait, it's 31 Fahrenheit. Everybody line up and be rigid. So the point is, if you want people to innovate or you want people to be on time, on budget, on quality, you want them to minimize risk, it's not about what you tell them to do. It's about the structure you create. So it's not so much about culture. It's much more about the underlying structure that drives those patterns of behavior. So by ice cube, I mean separate out the liquid part and this ice part. And you what you want to achieve essentially is life at 32 Fahrenheit. Right at the cusp of a phase transition, those two things coexist. And that's essentially, and obviously we're just sort of talking tip of the, quote, iceberg. We're talking just, you know, very quickly here, and there's a lot more detail. But the bottom line is that's essentially what Vannevar Bush did. He separated the liquid where the artists you want them to fail as much as possible, and the soldiers you want them to fail as little as possible.
1: And is it? It may be implied in what you're saying with the examples, but is, is that failure not fatal, <laughs> like for the most part, or or is some of that failure painful?
0: It really is about failure. So if you're a soldier, let's say you know your job is to manufacture parachutes, you yeah. don't want a lot of experimenting. You right. want every parachute to work really, really damn well. On the other hand, if you're an artist, whether that means a biologist in the lab or an engineer in the back working on some wild new algorithm or a coffee machine designer coming up with a, a really beautiful new design, you want them to try 10 different things.
1: More pride than money, I guess. Exactly.
0: I'll get to that in one second. But the reason you want them to try 10 things, you know, nine of which don't work, is because if you don't do that. Your competitor who is trying those nine things and discovers that 10th will see it before you do. And then you'll discover it too late when it's a bullet coming to your head. Yeah. So the reason it's so difficult for managers to wrap their mind around this, and this takes us to number two, the garden hoe, be a gardener, not a Moses. There's this sort of myth of leadership that the great leader is this someone who stands on top of a mountain and raises his or her staff and anoints yeah. the chosen project or the holy loom shot like Steve Jobs with the iPod but that's complete garbage that's a total myth that's not how any of these great leaders led what they really did is they managed the touch and the balance between these two groups because these two groups your artists and your soldiers don't like each other and they generally don't understand each other it's the people who make the money don't like the people who spend the money and vice versa And your job as a manager or leader is to manage the touch and balance between those two. For example, the iPad when it came out was a beautiful design from Johnny Ives group at Apple. But if you didn't have Tim Cook's group, the soldiers getting the cost down from $3,000 to $600, there'd be no Apple today. You need both. And that is really the story of the great leaders. They manage not by, you know, raising their staff and, Telling people what to do, but by managing the touch and the balance between these two, understanding that you need both, which gets us to number three, the heart. Love your artists and soldiers equally. What do I mean by that? It means that if you are a manager or a leader, you may be predisposed, you may not even be aware through your signaling that you are favoring one side over the other. And if you are favoring one side over the other, you are unbalancing your ship because you need both. You need those two working together. A wonderful idea doesn't just turn into a product. You know, having a good idea gets you from your end zone to your five-yard line. The other 95 yards down the field is working together with the soldiers to turn that into a product that you can deliver consistently on time, on budget, on spec to customers. That's the artist and the soldiers working together to get the ball down the field from idea to consistent high quality product. So number three means love your artists and soldiers equally. And so they actually the example with Steve Jobs, when he first started, he was the perfect example of what not to do. Yeah. When his first time at Apple, he, you know, he praised, oh, the Macintosh, everyone who's working on this, the future of computing, you know, we're the true artist, literally, because he saw himself as this great artist, and everyone else is just a boring regular Navy soldier. And it was a total
1: disaster. And, and those divisions made all the money.
0: And yeah. And the soldiers, of course, are bringing in all the money. Yeah. So it was a complete disaster. People on both sides started walking out. And you know the, the street between their two buildings was known as the DMZ, the demilitarized <laughs> zone. There was so much hostility. right? And then when the Macintosh launched, it was a total flop. It was overpriced. It overheated. It was underpowered. Not enough memory. No one bought it. And Apple was rapidly headed for bankruptcy.
1: Yeah
0: fast forward and of course he was asked to leave justifiably fast forward 12 years later when he came back and why he came how he learned that is another sort of fascinating story he learned it from the movie business where you have to balance artists and soldiers and filmmakers and producers and so on when he came back you know he balanced the tim cooks and the johnny ives the soldiers and the artists and tim cook of course he had recruited Was the first things he did is he looked for a really great operational guy and he found somebody, at compact computer, whose nickname was, quote, the Attila the Hun of inventory. Now, if there's a better name for a soldier inside a company, I couldn't make one up. Yeah, And he led by managing the two. And when he died, was it the artist, which is how Jobs saw himself, was it the artist who took over? No. The legendary Johnny Ive and his design group? No, it was the ultimate soldier. So he loved both equally. And so that's an example. If you're a manager or a leader, and I have so many other examples from, you know, friends and colleagues who are subtly signaling their troops. Anytime you only talk about your innovation group or some new idea, you're subtly signaling to the rest of the folks who may be working on 90, 95% of the revenue of your company that they don't matter, that they're second-class citizens. Right. A friend of mine who runs a major magazine you know, was saying that they said that their leadership team is always going on about whoever's squawking the loudest about some shiny new toy or podcast or whatever. She says, I'm putting out, we're working nights and weekends to put out a magazine every 30 days. And it just makes us feel like crap when that's all they talk about. So you have to signal both. So those are the three, the ice cube, separate your artists and soldiers, the garden hoe, be a gardener, managing the touch and the balance between those two and the heart. Love your artists and soldiers equally.
1: I've always wondered sort of what separates the sort of daydreamers from the people who get it done. I know some of it is is covered in what you said there, but there was this company, Quirky, a few years ago that was like democratizing, creating consumer products. And it was growing like crazy. It raised a ton of money. Uh, They were launching all these products every year. People were helping them design them. They were competing in all these categories. And and when it went under, uh, I remember reading sort of one of the postmortems that said, you know, it just sort of flew too close to the sun. And and sometimes when you do, like, it's crazy enough to work or it's crazy enough to not work. Like, even with all those right conditions, sometimes, it, is it a matter of just a two to three degrees of, you know, flying too close to the sun to get burned or, or you make it around?
0: I, I don't remember, I remember the name. I don't remember exactly what happened in their particular... Circumstance.
1: Yeah, they were launching, they raised a ton of money. They were just launching consumer products using sort of crowdsourced uh, design and, and testing. So they were launching like tons of products every year and probably too many products, you know, to really go through them. But it was going to change how products were developed.
0: Yeah, you know, the point there is when you get out of balance. If you are overly favoring the nurturing loon shots and wild crazy ideas and you take your eyes off the ball on the franchises. Right you will sink so it's just like you're on that nuclear submarine
1: yeah
0: if you just focus on oh here's some wacky new technology here's some great you know new tools and things that we can do and you take your eye off the ball and the nuclear engine you're going to be dead and the same thing if you only focus on your nuclear engine and you don't pay attention to the new technologies that could come and hurt your business or hurt your submarine
1: it's a slower death <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a, It can be a very surprising and it can take a little longer, but it, when it happens, it can be very surprising.
1: Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The Shop Pay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com/elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. shopify.com/elevate how much of this crisis do you think is is just accelerating that process for like i've heard a lot like department stores have really been dying for a decade right and maybe this just accelerates that a little bit
0: well yeah i think you know a, a lot of it's almost a truism that you see this every depression every recession every deep crisis which is that when things are going well uh, not only does it help the really strong players but it helps the Kind of medium players who may have a little bit shakier business model, and when things start doing poorly, when the tide goes out, the first to go are the ones that were shaky. Uh, The ones who are strong uh, are the ones who survive. So that you know, there's certainly a handful of lessons which I, you know, when I talk to companies now, this is obviously the focus today. There's a handful of lessons of leadership in crisis that come from what worked in the prior recessions yeah and you look and you see that what worked consistently in fact there was a very interesting study done systematically going through hundreds of companies but those companies that focused primarily on efficiency operational efficiency and cost cutting did not do very well did not do the best for sure they may have survived but they did not come out the other side ahead they weren't the winners Those companies that just focused on trying to innovate their way out of the crisis also didn't necessarily do the best. And many of them died, like you suggested with Quirky, because they may not have focused enough on the operational efficiency side. The ones who came out of the crisis, came out the other end the best, racing ahead of their competitors, like Adobe is one example, Netflix is another example, are the ones who got the balance right. They, on the one hand, they really kept their eyes on the ball on operational efficiency. And and in the time of crisis, that's really about cash. Yeah. It's not necessarily about firing people because if you want to also do innovation, well, where's that innovation going to come from? Well, it's going to come from your people. So right. if you've got no people, you're not going to get a lot of innovation. But by really figuring out how they can squeeze costs down and save you know, pennies here and there. And when I was running a biotech company, you know, in biotech, this is sort of par for the course. And biotechnology life is just a roller coaster and you're going through ups and downs and ups and downs. And so it,
1: it's very binary. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You have a, a drug or that you've poured tens or hundreds of millions of dollars into and you get a 90 second phone call that it didn't work. And then that product just vanishes. Yeah. So that's a pretty big crisis. Um, and you certainly learn not only that. Uh, You want to balance operational efficiency and innovation, which is important, and you learn how to preserve costs wherever you can and, you know, reuse paper clips and print on both sides of the paper and all that sort of stuff, really improving operational efficiency. But you also learn that innovation loves crisis. The best time to innovate is exactly when things are tough. Why? Because the kind of organizational issues that kill new ideas inside medium or large companies that I talk about in shots and all the things and tricks you can do to guard against that and to balance that and to have them succeed, that resistance to new ideas goes way down in times of crisis. And everybody rolls up their sleeve and their willingness and openness to try new stuff will never be higher. Yeah. So if you talk to, you know, those of us who've been in biotech or, or many have been through crises before, and you ask honestly, let's look at your best programs, your best products, your best projects. When did they start? And almost always you will find they started at the bottom when you were at the bottom of a cycle. When did Adobe switch to subscription service rather than you know, the the CDs they used to you buy the CDs from them and so forth? That was in oh eight, oh nine. Oh yeah. There was another little company that you know used to send out uh, DVDs with movies called Netflix. Yeah, and when did they switch to streaming? Well, it was around oh eight oh nine. So those were pretty successful experiments. You know, ten billion a year in one case, twenty billion a year in another case. One of the very interesting things for businesses coming out of this is, yes, it's very difficult,
1: but it's also possibly the most innovative opportunity you'll ever have. Yeah. And there's a lot of companies, like enduring companies that all started during crisis, right? I think that, that if you can make it work then, otherwise, you, you made me think of one of my favorite quotes earlier, which is when the, when the tide goes out, we see who's not wearing their bathing suit. Exactly right. Wow. <laughs> That's right. That goes part and parcel, right? I, to that is like, if you, if it works now, it really should work when things are better, right? It is more of an enduring value proposition. It did. It instills a discipline because if you're working in times of crisis, you
0: have to get the balance right of right. A, operational efficiency, and B, wild
1: innovation. If you can do that, you're golden. We'll keep that in mind as we, we think about our own blueprints. So how do you think this crisis will sort of change longer term perception relationship around public health and biotech, especially here in the US? Uh, it does seem to be a little bit of resurgence of science, which there's been a lot of pushback and sort of dismantling of the last couple of years, particularly at the government level.
0: Yeah. Well, one thing I hope will come out ahead is belief in science. Yeah. That might be one good thing is restoring some belief in science because we're not going to talk this virus to death. We're going to win through science and innovation. So it, to me it's been amazing to see the resources Directed against this problem. So, two or three years ago, uh, the industry, the biotech, came up with uh, a drug or a drug regimen that essentially took an incurable disease, hepatitis C, and cured it, made it chronically manageable. Same thing for HIV, same thing for tuberculosis, then the same kind of thing for certain types of cancers like childhood leukemias. And in all cases, that development followed a pattern. It was, there was first one drug that made some difference, you know, 20, 30% types of response, then another drug that made some difference. And then when the third drug came along, you got a cocktail or a regimen that just completely turned the course of the disease. And that's what happened with HIV, with cocktail retroviral therapy, and that's what happened with hepatitis C, and that's what happened with tuberculosis in the 50s. And that's, I think, what we will see playing out with Covid nineteen, and I think so much of uh, media attention is focused around a vaccine, which in the typical timelines are you know twelve to eighteen months. And uh, you know, I think there's some reason to be optimistic that we will have data. There's seventy vaccines in development, just FYI.
1: I was going to ask you: Do you think the vaccine will be on the on the shorter end of that? I think we'll
0: be on the shorter. I think there are you know just a step back. One thing that most people miss is drug discovery is a shots on goal game, yeah, not an anecdote game and not a magic bullet game. It's not how it works. And we have never had so many resources, so many shots on goal. There are over 250 therapies in development within 90 days from first getting the sequence of the virus. It's unbelievable.
1: You don't have any other disease right now. That's one of the downfalls of this. (laughs)
0: Yes. Well, there's, you know, obviously some stuff is going on in parallel, but I would say roughly speaking today, we have somewhere between a hundred to a thousand times the scientific resources directed against this one virus than we did against hepatitis C a couple years ago. And we cured hepatitis C. It's just astonishing. And so the probability Typically, the way that it works is once you have two or three drugs that you can use, each of which is sort of moderately effective, and once you have two or three drugs that are moderately effective that you could use in combination, that's when you make a major breakthrough in turning the course of the disease, turning it from a fatal to a a chronically manageable condition. And I think that's that's how it played out in TB, that's how it played out in Ebola, that's how it played out in HIV, that's how it played out in, in a number of cancers. And I think that's how it'll play out. And I think what, what people miss is that it will, you know, there's no question a vaccine will take around a year. Now, some pretty conservative companies have already indicated and guided to having data in the fall, and I think that's very likely. There are already four in clinical trials, and so having data pretty soon is is not completely implausible. I think scaling that up will be a bit of a challenge, but having data and having early vaccine ready for early rollout to Healthcare first responders in the fall, or I mean, by the end of this year, and then more broadly to the public uh, early next year is seems pretty reasonable. But before that, there are you know in the next four to six weeks, maybe almost fifty clinical trials reading out Mm. with drugs with treatments, things that actually target either the virus directly or the immune reaction, which is what kills people, and you don't need all 50 to be successful. You don't even need 40 of those 50 to be successful. You just need a couple to
1: make a difference in the next few weeks. And the immune reaction I was reading yesterday, that's what's affecting the healthy, otherwise healthy people, right? They're having a, an over-immune reaction?
0: Yes, it is the out-of-control immune response, which is what causes the immune infiltrates. It gives you the pneumonia and the difficulty breathing. And then it balloons. It just becomes a cycle where the immune system is activated and gets because it's activated, it gets even more activated, and it doesn't stop. And then it starts out of control, attacking other organs in the body. Uh, What's like a sepsis reaction, and that that's very very difficult to recover from. And so there are many pieces of that that we still don't understand. Why does the immune system spill out of control in some people and not others? And that, by the way, has been a longstanding. Problem. That's not only the case for uh, this, you know, SARS CoV 2, but that was the case for other types of infections as well. So there's a lot of research that's going into figuring that out now. But there are a handful of drugs that look very promising in controlling that particular immune response. And then there's a handful of drugs that have shown some early signals that they might be promising for targeting the virus directly any of those that work and i'm hopeful i think it's more likely than not that within the next few weeks we'll get pretty clear signals of activity from one or more of them we won't be slowing the infection rate that will depend on a vaccine but we will be reducing the fatality
1: rate and that allows us to keep the economy open
0: exactly By the way, so many people get common colds or there's four coronaviruses that are widely in circulation. There's ronaviruses that are widely in circulation. Everybody has dozens and dozens of viruses that they live with that are chronic, but not fatal. If we have treatments over the next few weeks that can convert this into a chronic, but not fatal condition, that completely changes the nature of the disease.
1: So last question for you, what what's a personal or professional mistake, and this could be singular or repeated, that you've made that you've learned the most from?
0: God, where should I start? I've made so many I <laughs> over the course of my career that it's just zillions. Um, you know, I think when I first started as a manager or leader, I had some good friends who kind of called me out on this, you know, a few years into it. I grew up with a very science background, very sort of logic-driven, scientific-driven, strategic-driven approach to life, and that's not how everybody thinks. And so, very often, I would be leading from the head, but people really wanted me to hear what's going on with their heart. And so, very often, the mistake I made a lot in the beginning was, you know, not only leading from just the head, but also in failing to listen to the music behind the words. And somebody said that to me once years ago, and it really stuck with me. When someone is coming up to you and saying, you know, I'm having real issue with this report and this deadline or this thing or this sales guy, and at face value, it just seems like a really minor thing, but they are very agitated. You know, if you just address the surface problem or the report or the, you know, the particular conflict or whatever, you're missing the music behind the words. What's really going on underneath? And so a mistake I made repeatedly in the beginning was not listening to the music behind the words. And once uh, somebody opened my eyes to that, I started being much better in empathy and in teasing out what was really bugging people. And because of that, I was able to help people much better. So it took me, unfortunately, many years to learn that lesson. But when I did, I was very glad that I did. And that helps you, by the way, in personal life as well as professional life.
1: Uh, I love that answer. And I think it's common for it to take a while to, <laughs> to sink in for, for most of us. Uh, Safi, where can people learn more about you and your work and find your book?
0: Uh, well, you can obviously buy it online, but you go to my website, uh, loonshots.com or com, And uh, like I mentioned, if you... Uh, and to email there, you get this uh, free copy of the book and once a month or so I'll send out a newsletter, not like yours, Bob, which I get once a week. I don't have that. I don't know how you have that stamina and productivity to do that, but I'll do it. Maybe once a month, if I can remember.
1: (laughs) Uh, uh, I'm going to run out of ideas. One of these days. Uh, Safi, thank you for uh, joining us today. Uh, I learned a ton fascinating conversation and we'll, we'll have to do it again, maybe in six to nine months. And we'll see how you're, uh, how this played out versus um, how you think it's going to play out.
0: All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on your show.
1: To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Safi and his work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode of the Elevate podcast or in general, I'd really appreciate it as you could leave a review. Uh, it helps new users discover the show. Thanks again for your support. And until next time, keep elevating.